Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Bishalach this morning. We're at the book of Exodus. Um, as you know, we're reading on the triennial cycle, which means we're reading the second portion of every portion. We're reading the middle portion of every portion. We're starting at 15, 15, 15, 15, according to the triennial division, but I'm going to go back a little bit because otherwise we're picking the story up smack in the middle of the incident and you can't under, you can't appreciate it without going back a little. So I would have said to them, uh, back up, add five more verses. You know what I mean? Backwards, but that's an excellent question. <laughs> so uh, if you go to a website like hebcal.com, it's broken out there, the triennial divisions by year. Um, so that's where I go because then I know I'm on the same. I don't know. Yeah, the Pope, exactly. Um, but our prayer book has a different division, slightly. So I think there's kind of a general consensus, but who who set that? I don't know. I'd have to look. I don't. I actually don't know. Okay, so we're beginning Parshat B'Shalach, Exodus fourteen ten, and we're going to read the first part of that quickly um, to get us closer to where our actual triennial second year reading begins. So someone read at fourteen ten, please. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to Adonai, and they said to Moses, Was it for one of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? Take us out of Egypt. Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Okay. They leave Egypt, right? They are on their way. They are trapped with the Yamsuf in front of them, the Sea of Reeds in front of them, and Pharaoh's army coming up behind them. This is the existential moment of panic because there's no way out, right? There's no way forward, and death is coming up behind you quickly. A violent, awful death is coming up behind you quickly. So this is, uh, for me, as we read all of this, I can't ever read this as just, as just, as a scene. This jumps off the page, maybe it's because I've been doing it so long, but this leaps off the page to me as existential metaphor at every single turn, right? That moment of panic when there's no way forward and you're sure either way, going forward or turning around, you're toast. And they have no faith yet that that this God is going to save them, which is interesting given what they've just experienced with the slaying of the firstborn. So it's very interesting that we don't have that. We don't have what they said to him in Egypt. So we don't know that that's true. Well, you can infer that he uh, had to put a little pressure on that. If they're telling the truth, then he had to convince them. But have you ever had people be stuck and the first thing they do is like, See, this is what I was, this is what I was saying about not wanting to come here in the first place. And it's like, you never said you didn't want to come here in the first place. Now you're saying that, right? So we don't know. We don't have it. We don't have that conversation recorded anywhere. So if they're telling the truth, then it looks like Moshe had to put some pressure on them because they were scared to leave, to die in the wilderness. We don't know that they're telling the truth, Beth. Huh? 
Then I thought, but on Tuesday in karate class, my four-year-old landed on his foot. He broke his foot. And you know what the first thing he said to me was? Mom, I told you I was going to get hurt today if we went to karate. <laughs> there you go. Right, and did had he actually had he actually told you he was going to get hurt when he went to karate that day? No. See, he made it up. There you go. 100%. Right. See, I told you. Right. See, I told you this was going to happen. He never said that. Now, maybe that was an internal conversation he'd had that he was afraid he was going to get hurt, and he's afraid every time he's. He goes to karate, he's going to get hurt. We don't know. Because he didn't say it out loud. Laura? Latent worries. Latent worries. There's also conditioning, because back in South Africa with our apartheid regime, the uh, black people um, that uh, were liberated by the new government, many, many of them said, we were much better under the black people, under the white people. They looked at us much better. Right. So this learned helplessness that says we'd rather be dependent on someone to take care of us that we can see and predict and know, because this God presumably has taken care of them a little bit, hasn't God? Um, but it's unpredictable still, and it's invisible, and it's on God's time, not on their time, right? So, so they're very much a learned helplessness product, and ultimately we know to what extent, and that is they don't make it. These people don't make it. These people are condemned at some point to die in the desert because God gets it that they won't ever be someone to say, yay, we're free. We have the opportunity to build something different than apartheid. All right. So is this not the very thing we... So Moses says to the people, Altirau. Don't be afraid. Stand and witness the deliverance which Adonai will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, those thundering down on you, all right, coming, they can feel, you know, you can imagine they can feel the hoofbeats and the chariot wheels in the ground, right? That Those thundering down upon us Egyptians, you will never see again. Adonai will battle for you. And he goes on, what does he say to them? Hold your peace. Hold your peace. Enough. Right? So what do you do with someone who's panicking? So, but it's not this kind of, don't worry, honey. It's going to be, right, Moshe does not mess around, right? He needs them to not panic. He needs them to cooperate. He needs them, he knows, to move forward. They're getting ready to cut and, you know, who knows what they're getting ready to do. But you know what a mob does when it's, riled and panicked and right so Moshe is very firm here right so don't be afraid stand watch witness what God is going to do for you hold your peace but just quiet down right he's trying to control this crazy situation control this mob let's go to the next verse so, so what's happening the people are talking to Moses Moses talks to them and says what he says. Look at our next verse. Someone read now at 15. Excuse me. Before you do that, I, I just want to comment on the phrase, um, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die in the wilderness? This irony, this sarcasm is so Jewish. <laughs> So it's a very good close reading, Reuben. Nicely done. Because the irony is they're coming out of a land obsessed with death. They're coming out of a land obsessed with tombs. All those pyramids are tombs. There are tombs everywhere in Egypt, right? Embalming, you know, all of that stuff was about preparing for the afterlife. Death was a huge transition to something that came next. They were obsessed with that that crossing and what had to be done to preserve one's life in the afterlife. That's the obsession with the corpse and embalming. You had to save the body here in order for that person to have a life in the afterlife, right? Um, and so that's the deep insulting irony is what? There weren't enough tombs in Egypt that you brought us out here to die, right? Incredibly cheeky, chutzpah ungrateful, really cheeky response. Um, by the people. We could certainly read it 
that way. Moshe then responds to them very strongly, you know, lovingly, but really a strong leader, calming them down. Someone read 15. Then Adonai said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it, so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots and riders. Let the Egyptians know that I am Adonai, when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his riders. Okay. So Moshe's just dealt with the people, talking to the people. God says to Moshe, What is this? You're crying out to me. Right? Speak to the people of Israel, right? That they may go forward. Tell me what what's odd about that verse. Thank you. Moshe hasn't cried out to God. The people were freaking out. Moshe handles it. And God says to Moshe, Ma, what? Ma. And and Aviva Zornberg has a gorgeous piece on Ma, on the many times that Ma is used in this. um, You know her stuff. You know how amazing it must be, her analysis of all the times Ma that what, when it really means why, comes up. This is one of them. That God says, What? Do you cry out to me? Why? And you have to go, uh, I'm not clear. <laughs> All right? Like, it, it doesn't seem Moshe has cried out to God. God says, speak to the Israelites, right, that, that they may go forward. Let them go forward. And you lift up your rod, hold out your arm over the sea and part it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. In the yam, but on yabasha, on dry ground. And then God is going to mechazek at Lev Mitzrayim. He's going to, God is going to harden the heart of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. And they're going to come in after you. All right. Incredible, 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 incredible things that the tradition does with this. Um, first of all, this piece where Moshe addresses the people. We're going to look at a text that talks about Moshe um, is not addressing all of this to all of the people. He's got four kinds of people who are freaking out. And each one of the things he says is to a different aspect of people flipping out, which is, Four mm-hmm. Four right? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful interpretation of the text that don't think he's saying all of this to everybody. Moshe is an inspired leader who understands you have to say different kinds of things to different kinds of people, just like the four sons, brilliant, um, that we have at the uh, Seder, where we retell this story, right? So, have no fear is one kind of response. Stand by and witness the deliverance which God will work for you today is another one. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again, right, is a third one. God will battle for you, you hold your peace, is number four. All right, so just kind of hold that as a possible framework. Then I want to look at this text closely as, you know, why do you cry out to me? The Midrash sees this problem. The rabbis aren't stupid. They, they see that nobody so far has cried out to God, right? So the Midrash fills in in the white space. Remember, we've talked about the Torah's black fire on white fire. And the white fire, the space between the letters and the words, the rabbis fill with the story that when the people freak out, Moses turns to God. We don't have it recorded here, but he's just calmed them down and he turns to God to say, you know, you got to help us, right? They're freaking out and and now would be a good time for you to make something happen. Uh, You hear those hooves? (laughs) And 
The rabbis say that God responds to Moshe, there's a time for prayer and there's a time for action. And that it is God rebuking Moses for praying to God that happens here. Fascinating what, what the Midrash does. So Moshe turns to God to say, okay, now would be a good time and starts to pray with his whole heart that, you know, that they should be saved and, and all of that. And God says, Right? This is not the time to pray to me. This is not the time to call out to me. Right? Tell the Israelites to go forward. So in this wonderful move by the rabbis, the rabbis say that God turns to Moshe and says, don't talk to me, talk to them. Don't pray. There's a time to pray and there's a time to do. And this is the time to do. I can't do anything, essentially. I love this. I can't do anything until they move forward. You know, God's speaking here somewhat testily to uh, Moses. Uh, you can see way back in uh, at the beginning where it says, uh, uh, God says that thinking, I guess. The people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt. He's already concerned about what, uh, what the people, how people are going to behave. So uh, that's why maybe he talks from the testimony. Heck yeah. He's, he's, he knows who he's dealing with, right? I find it fascinating that the rabbis have God unable, essentially, to affect the miracle until the people move forward. Right? This is, to me, a brilliant, wonderful spiritual truth that the rabbis lift up for us. That God cannot affect the opening of a new possibility until the people move until we are ready to take those steps forward, the universe can't possibly open anything up for us. Remember I told you the story last week. If I'm going to stay in Duluth, I have a sure gig. If I move out here, right, it's all risk. But until I pack my suitcase and get on the, you know, the plane, th- this can't open up. And for me, this is the moment that the rabbis lift up for us a spiritual truth that every single one of us, every single one of them, right, has known always is, I think, a fundamental part of how we're put together. Robert? I, I really like the, the interpretation because it, it just strikes me that it's a shift between a God-deterministic model to a people-deterministic model. And my sense, maybe this is unfair, is that the Judaism really is is one. Christianity, to some degree, tends to be the other. I mean, certainly a a number, well, maybe many Jews, actually, still believe in a God-determinist model. I don't know. I mean, for me, I think that's the difference between fundamentalism, right, and something else, which is, it's all in God's hands, and I turn it all over. Of any faith, you know, that I I leave it to God, God will take care of all this, or won't, it's up to God. And, you know, then more progressive understandings of those same religious traditions say, we have to be God's partners. God can't do it without us. Is it, well, I mean, would an interpretation of God being all-powerful be that God will not do it without us as opposed to cannot? So that is an important, yes. possible, possibly an important distinction. I'm not sure. I mean, it may not be an, an important distinction in the fact, in the outcome. But it's a difference only in your conception of the power of God, right? It's good, but I'm not going to because I want you to do it for yourself. So in either case, what I love is what Robert just said, is that it's it's dependent on our action. I mean, I'm obviously of the former, not the latter, right? I'm obviously somebody who believes the former, that it, oh, or the latter. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm glad that was clear. It's good I'm not a lawyer. Um, I am clearly someone who believes that, that God can't do it without us because we are God's hands in the world. We are the agents of our own transformation with, right, with the support and actualization in our lives of that energy, that force that I would call God. 
But isn't that, I mean, this probably doesn't matter, but is that consistent with what we say, you know, the Torah is true for all time, God knows everything, God's everywhere. Is that saying, is, it, is God can, can inconsistent with that conception? Not for me. Not for me, that is the truth. And that the oral Torah is as important as the written Torah, right? This Midrash I'm telling you, it's not here in the text, but it is the accepted, it is the accepted, um, interpretation, right? That, that most everybody who studied this text at all knows. And so for me, that's as important as what's actually written here. Um, and I forgot why I said that. All right. So if we if we are in France right sorry. now Yes. Which thank God we're not. If we are in France right now, this is very relevant. Talk to me. Because there are many people who are running to Israel. Mm-hmm. And there are others who feel this will pass or they can't do it. There's a whole range. That range must have been there. And I think when, when I read this, I think France. And every other time you're in danger and have to feel like, you know, you have to make a decision. And so I can imagine exactly what you're talking about existed the night where they had to take a lamb and slaughter it. A lot of them, I bet, didn't do that. To your point, it'll pass. I'm going to stay with the Egyptians. I at least know what's coming. I'm not slaughtering one of the gods of Egypt and publicizing that on my door for some crazy guy who says the entire reality as we know it is going to change tomorrow morning. I don't think so. Right? I'm going to be sensible. Thank you very much. So from that point, and then, you know, how much can people tolerate? And so I'm sure, yes, again, now comes uh, Rabbi Larry Kushner, who studies Jewish mysticism um, through kind of the Hasidic, you know, tale-telling um, end of things. He's wonderful. If you get if you get a chance, read Rabbi Lawrence Kushner's stuff. He's amazing. So, but he talks about that whenever we have a serious transformation, whenever we truly change, whenever we truly, you know, come through a scary situation, we kill the lamb, we put the blood on the door, and we go. There's always a second confrontation. Right? There's always another time we're going to get hit again, and this time it's going to be more serious. So if you quit smoking, right, you know, you give it up, you, you go cold turkey, two weeks into it, something's going to happen that's going to drive you to pick up that pack, and you're going to have to make a decision again. But this time, the stakes are even higher in some ways, right? If I, if I pick it up now, I'm right, you know, like there, there's this, way that it's compounded. Um, it's not just another cigarette, right? It's, um, anyway, so, right, there's a level at which, okay, I'm, now that I'm really pushed to the wall, can I make it without what I'm used to relying on? You know, can I really change? Can I really do this differently? And for him, he says, this is that moment. Here's the second, they, they had the courage to leave, they did it, and now comes the second confrontation with Pharaoh. It has to happen. This is how we work. I was just struck when I read the when we read the first passage, I keep coming back to it in my mind, but I thought I mentioned um, that it's sort of it's another instance where maybe where God is holding Moses accountable for the whole Jewish people. <laughs> you know what I mean? He is he's that happens to him so many times in this story, and at the very end he doesn't even get to go into Israel because of the people that flee. Well, thank you for sharing that depressing insight, Beth. (laughs) So this is, you know, this is the cost of leadership, right? That he, you know, he doesn't even get his own prayer. He can't even, like, let's imagine he's, he's praying to God like the rabbis imagine, right? Moses doesn't even get to do that, right? You know, God's like, well, you've got a people to deal with, right? He's like, stop talking to me. Or he's even saying, Moses, it wasn't even Moses who called out to him. It was the, the Jewish people, but he's saying, don't call out to me. Thank you, Moses, for what they did. So right. talking to Moses as the embodiment of the people, right. the, right. the representative of the people. Interesting. So, so again, compromising Moshe's unique and own relationship with God 
because he's not even being treated in your reading. He's not even being treated as Moshe. Right. He's being treated as the people of Israel. You're not even Moshe to me right now. You're Amcha, <laughs> right? You're you're just, the the people, the rabble. Well, uh, Moses needs help because uh, God says, "Tell the Israelites to go forward," but He doesn't stop there. He tells Moses exactly what is going how it's going to work. So Moses needs to know. God has to tell him exactly. I'm going to split the city and they're going to So he just doesn't rely on Moses' belief. He has to tell Moses. So, right, Moshe gets very specific instructions. Right. right? Diane? Isn't that also quite how to the point that we have to take responsibility for our actions? Of course. Of course. I think that's exactly what it is. Yes? They have to take responsibility for freedom. Means they have to move forward. We're told that Moses is supposed to raise his arm and the seas will part in But is that, that's not what happens. I thought it was somebody had to go down to the water, uh, and sure. down to the water and take that step in. This is, this is amazing to me. Did you hear what Susan just said? She said, it's, it says here that Moshe is supposed to stretch his hand out over the water and the waters will part and they'll move forward. But that's not what happens. Doesn't some guy go down there? Right? That's a midrash. So, but, but that, but this is the power of the oral tradition is that for a lot of us, it's like, wait a minute. Was that black fire or white fire? And we don't even know. Some Midrashim have become so accepted that it is now how we understand that story. So who here has not heard of Nachshon ben Aminadab going into the water first? And they have their little ones with them. Let's not forget, right? This is not an army. These are regular people who have been disempowered and have no idea what's going to happen to them and their little ones. It is... A moment of absolute sheer existential terror that, for the family you're describing, went on for two years. Yes. I'm just wondering, though, for the people who we were talking before about Jews and friends and potentially leaving friends, what do you think about, I mean, if we look at the Exodus story, what would be the view if we said we can interpret the story to mean that the Jews should stay in France and not leave and not flee? Is there a way of connecting it to that narrative? So uh, this this question came up last week, um, and my my answer is that no, I don't want to connect this narrative to that in terms of a should. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like I, I can't tell anybody else should if I don't live there, and even if I lived there, I would say here's my opinion. Here's what my family's doing. I completely understand that you need to make your own decision. I'm going to urge you to think about what what my evidence is for my decision, but that's all I can do. Um, I don't ever want to tell somebody should. They should stay. They should go. This story for me is not about should you leave France or not. That This does not relate to that directly for me yet. <laughs> right now it could reach a place where it is. Right at some point in Nazi-occupied territories, this story would have made a lot of sense. Um, but again, this is a story about the way has been opened, and right the the alternative they could have stayed in Egypt, the, and in some ways, okay, you stay in Egypt, you stay a slave. Okay, that's a choice, and we might even be able to say, I don't know, but we might say that's a legitimate option. You don't want to slip through the wilderness? Look, this generation doesn't have a very good time in the wilderness, right? Right? They, they don't have it easy. They don't make it, by the way. They don't make it. They drop in the wilderness. Exactly what they just said to Moshe about, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you bring us to die in the desert? They do die in the desert because they can't let go of that mindset. But my point is that might be a legitimate option to stay a slave, but that's not our story. Our story is the invitation to become something other than dependent, right? I see it as metaphor and can only see it in some ways as metaphor for it to be really powerful for me because 
if God was actually here and this is actual history, where was God at Auschwitz? I cannot accept this as literal. This is why I'm not a fundamentalist. It is powerful metaphor. It is powerful spiritual teaching, right, for me. Not literal in that sense. I think of my husband, where he's also a survivor from the Holocaust, but also physically he's been hungry because of the revolution, hungry is part of the revolution. And yet it's over here, and he's still a slave from this back this is also the possibility also that you make a step forward. And that's why they spent 40 years in the desert to take away that mentality of being victimized. And that's what I just wanted to mention. And they didn't. It didn't take away the victim mentality. They died in the desert. Who got in, who built the land of Israel, you know, according to our sacred mythology, was Natalie. That's who got in. Your daughter. Not your husband. Because he, he, like you said, he's still enslaved to what happened, to the past, to, to who that's made him. And, and he's one of the ones that, that dies in the desert because he, he can't be the one to move, to move forward in that sense, right? It was forward out of Hungary, forward out of Egypt, okay. But they, they didn't, they weren't able to shake, right? The, and, and that ultimately costs Moses. As you said, Beth, that, that costs Moses his entry into the land, by the way, is dealing with that people. Because the secondary trauma clearly affects Moses. Constantly dealing with traumatized people finally drives Moshe to the breaking point. And it's at that point that God says, you too now are not fit. You're too, you're too affected. You're too tainted by your career with these people. It's cost you too much, and you can't do it either. It has to be Joshua. And were it not for them leaving, the reminder is, just because you're not going to get there doesn't mean you shouldn't leave. All of the stories of, oh, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of people who did leave, and they had a heart, and the immigrants who come here now, and they trade their profession for uh, a mock. Right. Right. That's it. That's exactly it. We we are here because of them. All of them that were able somehow to put one foot in front of the other and go to the water. So back to Susan's point. So the Midrash is that while this is going on, right? While all this business is going on between Moshe and God, the people, there's, I love, you gotta love Talmud. You gotta love the fact that on the page are these two Midrashim. One that says every tribe is fighting to be the first one to get to go. So while Moshe is talking to God, they're all arguing about who gets to go first. On that same page is a midrash that says none of them are willing to go down to the water. None of them. Until one Israelite from the tribe of, has to be from the tribe of Judah. Has to be from the tribe of Judah. Has to be David's tribe. Right? Has to be, right, where the temple's gonna be, right? So, has to be. So he is from the tribe of Judah, and he walks down to the water while all this, everyone's arguing, and while all that's going on, he starts to walk into the water, and he gets to his ankles, and he gets to his calves, and he gets to his knees, gets to his waist, it gets to his chest, gets to his neck, and as the waters finally reach the point where they're about to close over his head, the miracle is affected. Right, It took that person to trust to that extent in order for the miracle of new possibility to actually open up. This is the beauty of the rabbi's right ability to take the story the next level. Um, 
and how how many of us are actually willing to walk in right that far a lot of us stop here and go uh, excuse me obviously this is not going to work and we go back out don't we dripping freezing it didn't work <laughs> it didn't work um see i knew it wasn't going to work see i told you it wasn't going to work i knew all along it wasn't going to work um so the the rabbi, the rabbis get it that we have to be willing to go in to where the waters close over our heads and then the possibility is opened up for us. Only then. God said to Moses that the waters will open, but did he tell that to the people? Did not even know that that could happen? The rabbis don't worry about it. Right, right. That crazy Moses. Or, or just some crazy guy walking into the water. Right. So, well, for the rabbis... Nachshon had full faith that the God that delivered them from Egypt would do something. And it wasn't going to be, you know, he wasn't going to turn around and go face the Egyptian army. I mean, I'm, I'm making this up. But my assumption, just having studied the rabbis long enough, is, you know, that, that for Nachshon, it was the demonstration of full faith. That even though it appears that that's water that we're going to drown in, I'm going forward. Because I, I 100% believe something will happen that god will not leave us to drown i've witnessed with my right i've witnessed the whatever you can you can tell yourself the whole dialogue in his head um and he walks forward and th- we're called into say the rabbis that kind of emuna that kind of faithfulness right um that kind of trust that level of faith um which i i i can only speak for myself <laughs> It does not happen very often. It happened on the table when I was having a very dangerous C-section. And that's probably one of the few times in my life that it was like, I am pushing forward and the waters will close over my head and what will be, will be. But it... But isn't it true at the same time once you have that kind of faith to drag also people with you to that space? I would say, according to this story, according to the Nachshon Midrash, no. What happens is because of Nachshon's faithfulness, it opens up for everybody. In that sense, you know, like he, they they didn't walk with him when it was water, but he opened up something that now everybody can walk because it's Yabasha. Now it's dry land. In other words, when we change our ways, we cannot change somebody else. Once we change our way, there's consequence to people around us. And this is not a solo flight. Right? According to our tradition, this is a group flight. <laughs> We're in this together. What Nachshon does opens the way for the rest of the people, absolutely, uh, to move forward. Are there any oral traditions that say Nachshon made the choice as between two deaths, he'd rather go into the water and then God said, let me save him and open it up then? No. <laughs> <laughs> But but you can write that story, Laura. <laughs> but it, you know, it makes me think of people who know that they're facing the ultimate and have you know a less painful option in front of them. For the rabbis, it's not a tale of despair. Now, you want to write the Nachshon despairing story? The drowning is better than being cut to shreds by a chariot? And we, we will read it together and study it closely. Um, but the, I want to tell you another midrash that I really love, which is that the men were arguing over how it, who should go down and who shouldn't go down. And while they're arguing, the women linked hands behind them and started walking forward. So that essentially, the women with their locked arms moving forward essentially pushed the men into the sea and and like it parted. <laughs> Beth likes that one. My brain is Is it that if there's a God and we are and He does absolutely everything for? My understanding of from coming here is that. That God is calling us to be different, to grow, to be ethical, to change, to, to, to inhabit a bigger space. If somebody is constantly, we could just be taken care of 100% completely all the time, no sorrow, no sadness, 
nothing. We would stay exactly the same. Nothing would ever happen. Nothing would have, there would be no alchemy inside of us to become people that could go into Israel. They, they had to opt in. And it's only under this kind of pressure sometimes that we do. It's only when it's a spiritual emergency. We have a book called Spiritual Emergency. Right? It's only sometimes in a physical or spiritual emergency that we are really, really able to do what it takes to radically grow and radically change. Talk to somebody who's had a cancer diagnosis. Right? There are many people with that diagnosis. I've seen them in my office who say, I don't wish for this. I wouldn't have asked for this. And my life has been radically changed for the better because of this. I wouldn't ask for it. I'm not saying I wanted it. I still don't want it. And I have a different approach to life every single day because of it. Because now I've tasted what it means to maybe not be here. And that has changed my relationship to time, to my relationship to priorities, my relationship to when I say I have to. Um, you know, it's it's spiritual emergency. That's what this is. These are not, and they they're little moments, you know. Uh, uh, you know, but this is talking about I think like a, a radical transformation. That exactly what you articulated. The alchemy can't happen without a catalyst, and the catalyst is not always a really great thing. <laughs> right? It's not some aha moment, right? During meditation. Right? It's often something radically scary. Painful. And painful. That's life altering. In, in a, in a good way for us. In a liberating way for us. Do not be afraid, Moshe says to them. Rabbi Rami Shapiro says there's two kinds of fear. Fear that liberates and fear that freezes. So when I say Moshe is addressing four different, these are four different statements, you know, about four different aspects of panic. It's that don't be afraid. He's talking about the fear that freezes us, right? Fight or flight, but there's also freeze. <laughs> Look at a deer in the headlights. That's freeze. That's how they get killed because they, they panic and they don't know what to do and they lock up. So he's saying to them, don't be afraid, and that we fantasize that what we're afraid of, that our fear is of the unknown. And Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, fear of the unknown is impossible. We can't be afraid of what we don't know. What we're afraid of is what's ahead of us, is what's happened to us. What we're afraid of moving into that what's out there, because we don't know what's out there exactly, what we're actually afraid of is that it's what we know that's hurt us. That there's another Pharaoh out there. Right? That there's another oppressor out there. We're never afraid of what we don't know. That's not possible. He says, what we fear is what's happened to us. Imagining their future in terms of their past. That's what leads them to to want to quit, right? To to want to turn back. The fear that liberates is awe, right? In Hebrew, the same word, awe and fear. That that's that kind of awe, that kind of fear is the kind that helps us inhabit a bigger space. That it's they're not. We've had this discussion a million times, I know, but, you know, and some people say, they're not related, awe and fear, you know, but I just think they are. <laughs> like, when I stand in awe of the stars and my place in the cosmos, it is definitely related to fear a little bit. My insignificance, the shortness of time I'm given, the incredible importance of forming and raising a human being, like, did I, I mean, just all of it, like, it, it is for me, this, the Hebrew gets it. it, there's a relationship between fear and all that can be liberating in its own way, that calls us into wanting to, to do well if we only have a short time. What is the Hebrew word? Yir'ah. Yeah. So you hear that Abraham was a God-fearer. 
it's not great in English. He was in awe of what he experienced as Yudhevavhe and lived his life in awe. That's what they mean by he was a God fearer. He doesn't walk around afraid God's going to zap him. <laughs> right? That, it just, the English just is a tangle that I, I don't love. Alright, so, do not be afraid. Like, don't get stuck. Y'all who get stuck, like, in your fear of that it's going to be just as bad going forward as what you've known. He says, right, instead, see. Take courage, right? And see what, what's going to happen for you. So he doesn't urge them yet, according to this teaching of Rabbi Rami Shapiro, which I love. He doesn't, he doesn't say move forward yet, does he? He addresses the fear that can freeze them, and then he says, like, take heart and see what's gonna be for you, that, that, that they have to shift out of that place of fear before they can be expected to move. Right? They have to, they have to be willing to look for other options. They have to be willing to see something else, something other than what they see that's got them stuck. And that this moment of why do you cry out to me, right, is when God says, okay, now it's time for action. Now it's time for them to partner with me, and it's time for them to be able to move forward. But it's not God who's going to make that happen. God says to to Moshe, speak to the people Israel. I love this. He says, speak, don't argue. Speak, don't yell. Speak, don't command. A beautiful close reading, right, that says, God says to Moshe, speak to them, not order them, not yell at them, not bully them, right? Like, you need to just talk to them. Talk to them, not at them. Talk to them. Don't bully them into it. That is not liberation. That's just substituting one one guy for the other. That is just a substitution and that is not transformative. Right? When we turn from this addiction to another one or when we turn from, right, this way of coping, you know, to another thing that helps anesthetize us and, and helps us get through stuff or one abusive relationship to another that we haven't left. And let them move forward. Speak to the people vaisa'u and let them move forward. Let them, don't make them. As as long as Moshe thinks he's responsible for their actions, he's going to perpetuate the cycle of learned helplessness. He's going to perpetuate, as long as he thinks he's got to make them do it, he's going to continue to have them be people who can't make decisions for themselves. They will not grow that way. Let them move forward. Speak to them. And then let them move forward. If you want to lead and you want to help transform these people and move them out of where they're stuck into what's possible, you can't make them. You're not Superman. You don't wear a cape. You don't have superpowers. You're not that important. It's not about you. Let them move forward. Lead them to a place where they can take the steps they need to take to change, to become different. To right, Margo? Do you want to say more about that, Margo? Amen. Instruction is so powerful in our daily living. That we're going to drag people we love into the water, aren't we? I see, I see what's opening up. I'm going to drag you with me because you need to be part of this. And I know how we need to go. And I know where we need to go, right? And we drag them with us, don't we? We're going to save them from themselves. That's exact, and that's exactly what we communicate to them every time we try to save them. We communicate, I do not trust that you are able to be with this 
and stay with this and get through this yourself. You can't do it without me because you are not strong enough and I don't trust you to do it on your own. And that is a crippling, crippling message to send to people we ostensibly love and, and do love and come out of the best. Think of every Jewish mother joke you've ever heard. Like out of every, yes. right, every best instinct, we hamstring people we love, especially our children, right? By, and Jewish fathers. And Jewish fathers, okay. So when I turn off the microphone, remind me to tell you a joke. <laughs> I'm not having it on the podcast. Um, so uh, an incredibly, an incredibly important teaching. So um, this is one of my favorite texts. It's one of my favorite moments. You know, we sing Micha Mocha at every service, and people are just like, you know, some people are like, really, again, why, why do we sing Micha Mocha, you know, at every time we have a service? And um, it's like the song, yeah, we know, we cross the sea, whatever, 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 right? Because that this moment, like you said, Margo, is present for us every morning, every day, every interaction that we have that's hard with someone we care about, with ourselves, right? Our relationship to ourselves and our own decisions and our own emunah and our own faithfulness and our own willingness to risk and become. And, and you know, there's this wonderful story that I, about the kid who comes to a chrysalis, who sees a chrysalis in the woods and sees the butterfly struggling you know, that terrible struggle to get out. And the kid feels so bad for the butterfly that the kid opens the chrysalis. Like so relieved, you know, like to have, to have helped this butterfly that was struggling so violently and awfully. And when the kid does that, the butterfly falls, of course, to the ground and eventually will die because it can't fly. The struggle to push out of the chrysalis is what clears the wings of fluid. And if you don't push through that narrow, if it doesn't struggle really hard to get out of that really tight, awful constriction, the fluid isn't pushed out of the wings and the butterfly will never fly. And I think this, that's this moment and, and and we have it as part of our liturgy because because we know that this moment happens over and over and over and over again right we know that this this is an experience we recall as a mythic moment in history when what we're doing is activating i hope or that's what we're supposed to be doing that's why it's there is activating right we've been delivered we know what that feels like we know that feeling of deliverance. We know the feeling when the waters open and the people move. We know that. We have to remember that moment. And that's why we evoke it in every service. I wish I could tell every Jew every time. That's why Micha Mocha is here. Because we can remember that feeling of opening up only after the terror. Only after the struggle through that really t- tiny, narrow awful opening that took everything we had to get through. Yes. Yes. Rabbi, when I looked at the text of the past, I skipped over the poem. <laughs> so, thank you so much, Reuben, for bringing us to the place of looking at the poem. 1511. So go to 15, verse 1, in your books. It is from this poem that Michamocha is derived, which is what Ruben's pointing out. 
So do you notice that the, is the text printed differently in your books than the rest of your text? Yes. Because your printed version is preserving for you visually a scribal tradition. This is how the song of the sea appears in every Torah scroll. So when you look at it, what do you notice? Waves. Lots of space. Okay, Sarah sees waves. If you look at the spaces, the big white spaces, what are the shape of those spaces? <laughs> I love that. The shape is clouds. Clouds cl- clouds have a shape, Laura? I love that. I love that. Clouds, they have the shape of a rectangle. And notice the arrangement of the rectangles. You get two rectangles and then one between them. The next line, two rectangles. The line after that, one between them. Yes? Looks like an hourglass. So when you see it in the Torah text, it's just straight. It, it, there's no pulling in like an hourglass. It's completely straight. The spaces, they go two and then one. Like two and then one. This is how one lays bricks. This is how one does mortaring. That you have two and then one that bridges them and then two, right? And then one that bridges so that this whole structure is supported. So this is a visual representation of what, what was their job in Egypt as slaves? What were we told? They made bricks. And then they were to build huge edifices in space, right, for Pao. So this wonderful juxtaposition of at the moment of their deliverance, that poem is done visually as a representation of what was their, the, the symbol of their oppression. Yeah? Or if one goes with Laura's interpretation, the symbol of the cloud of glory moving through the people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so this, so this is in every single Torah scroll, just like this. Um, this poem is one of the oldest pieces of, we're not going to walk all the way through it. I might just want to give you some knowledge about it because we're not going to get to it for another two years. Um, three years, whatever. So this poem is one of the oldest extant pieces of biblical Hebrew poetry that we have. Um, the language is archaic and in a way that is very similar to Canaanite language. So to pre-Hebrew, right? So those languages that gave rise to Hebrew, this has a lot in common with that. Um, it's very archaic, so we know it's very old from the time of the temple, this was um, a piece of liturgy that was used. The Levitical choir would sing half of it one Shabbat and half of it the next Shabbat. It's that old. This is one of the oldest pieces of liturgy, not just poetry, that we have. Meaning something they took from Torah and actually used as part of the, the public worship uh, experience. This was very common in the ancient world when you had a great military victory. A pean, how do you say that? P-A-E-N? Is that how you say it? Pean? Would be written about that victory. This is one such. It does not talk about their slavery, right? It does not talk about their experience other than as the receivers, the recipients of God's mighty intervention, right? This is a military celebration poem written about the victor, which is very clearly here, God. Right? So lifting verse 11 out of the poem, if you go to verse 11, Yes? Yes? Who is like you, Adonai, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic, right, in holiness. Nora, we use this word here, ah, fear, right? So this is about God, Nora, like awesome, right? Doing, doing wonders. So this, um, this poem, it, 
it was not only at the time of the temple. By the time of the second temple, it was part of their right, as I said. Then with the destruction of the temple, the Jews of Rome made this poem part of their every morning liturgy. That became universal eventually in the Jewish world. I grew up chanting this poem every single day of my elementary school life. I know this by heart. Um, the whole poem. There was a special melody that we used uh, for it. And when I was in Duluth, rather than just do Torah trope, I, I, you know, I couldn't just do Torah trope. This was Azir Moshe. This is a song of the sea. So I would do it the way I did it every morning of my childhood. Um, so we're going to go, uh, we're going to close the podcast. And then if you're, if you'd like, we're going to open the Torah and we're going to go to the song at the sea and we will chant the song at the sea. Yeah. All right. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.